there's a freshwater lake on the Isle of Skye that's the subject of legends. In the Gaelic language, we say that this is Shofarvel Nanayl Nantav. This is where the angels rest before they go to heaven. Coming up, guides from Scotland tell us what makes Skye an ideal destination for enjoying the Hebrides. You've got volcanic, jagged hills. You've got Jurassic sandstone. You've got this wonderful feeling of, of wildness. We'll also get tips for making the most of a paddling trip down the Mississippi River. I would stop at the casinos. They're air-conditioned. You plunk down $10, and you can eat and eat and eat without guilt. And we'll learn about the places in Belfast that influenced singer Van Morrison's career. And you can see where he got his voice and his belting blues sensibility from. Come along as we tour the Van Morrison Trail, the Isle of Skye, and take a closer look at America on today's Travel with Rick Steves. George Ivan Morrison was born to working-class parents in a Protestant neighborhood of Belfast, Northern Ireland, on August 31, 1945. His father's impressive record collection of American rhythm and blues influenced young Van to start a band at the age of 12. His career as a musician would lead to being knighted in 2016 for his role in tourism and in aiding charities in Northern Ireland. We'll find out what you can discover of Van Morrison's Belfast a little later in the hour ahead. And Dave Ellingson recommends a long-distance kayaking trip as a great way to get in touch with America and yourself. He shares what his solo trips down the Mississippi and Hudson Rivers showed him in just a bit. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves on the Isle of Skye, the largest of the Hebrides Islands. It's an ideal place to connect with Gaelic traditions and the beauty of Scotland. Our guides are James McCletchie, who lives on an island in the Outer Hebrides, and Anne Doig, who's from Edinburgh. Thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, James, or I can call you Seamus, because that's the proper <laughs> Scottish you word. You can do. Thank you. Seamus, you, you live beyond Skye, in the Outer Hebrides, and you've been commuting to Skye for, for decades. What does the word Skye mean? Skye has various uh, meanings. Originally, it comes from the Norwegian, the Viking name, which means ski, which means cloud, and A is island, so it's a cloudy island. Uh, but then it came into the Gaelic word, which was Anchilanskiana, which was the winged island, or Elanichio, which is a misty island. Misty island. So there's a little bit of a consensus. Cloudy, misty, yeah. sort of romantic. How, how accessible is Sky? Sky is very accessible um, today. You can leave from Edinburgh or Glasgow. You can drive up there through some beautiful, stunning scenery. Take you about five and a half hours by road to get to Sky. Uh, there's a bridge now crossing over onto the island. And then you're into this amazing place that's 50 miles long by 25, 30 miles wide. Now, Anne, what is, what is the Isle of Sky mean to you, just as, as a Scottish person? Well, for me, it's the scenery. And it encapsulates something very Scottish because it's, there's a huge variety of scenery. You've got volcanic jagged hills. You've got Jurassic sandstone. You've got this wonderful feeling of, of wildness because Europe's so packed now, but you get to Sky and even those loads of people going over that bridge or taking the ferry, they just vanish. And the population well, is just very sparse. The main town, Portree, has most of the people, and that's just 13,000. Yes, it's also a stronghold of the Gaelic language, isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. Yes, they still speak Gaelic there. The pubs on Portree, they often have ceilis where people get together and, and play the music and the dance, speak in Gaelic. Quite a few famous musicians came from Skye as well. Now, Seamus, you live in an island beyond Skye, which is like beyond, beyond, and Gaelic is, is not that unusual where you live. I understand there's actually a college in Gaelic. 
and Old sky. Yeah, there's a college, yeah. Sol Morostic, and they have some of the oldest manuscripts from no, the Gaelic no, language. But what is it? Because I, I got to say, from a practical point of view, you're talking a language that, what, 50,000 people might speak or something. What is the practical value of that? It, it's a huge investment of energy to keep this language alive. Is it going to be people's first language in the future, or will it be a language that people who are passionate about their Scottish heritage will know as a, like Norwegians wear a nice sweater? I think the language is important for the culture the of the cult, people. The culture, the culture of the people. We have been, the fact that it was banned after Culloden and uh-huh. it managed to survive, many of the place names are in Gaelic. The practicalities of it are still around Sky and in the Hebrides. Obviously, if you take it elsewhere, it's of no use. But to be able to communicate in the old language links you to the people of the past and links you to what they achieved. And are there environments where there's nothing novel about the fact that people are speaking Gaelic? This is, I just live in a small town on a small island and my parents speak Gaelic and I speak Gaelic. Does that actually happen today? We speak the language on a daily basis. Yes, we've had to anglify a lot of what we do, uh-huh. but it's much easier for us to speak in our own native language. But then if you look back into the clan history, you have the clan chiefs. They had Gaelic poets. We have the Clars of Dao, the blind harper, uh, who used to write the poetry for the clan chiefs there about all his fortitudes in battle and how wonderful he was. Wow. And you've got Dunvegan Castle. That would be the headquarter of the uh, MacLeods, right? Yes. Now you go into there and you realize the deep heritage and, and the local pride. Yes, yes. That's a, that's a really important place for Clan MacLeod and all the associated clans. They've got the paintings of the old clan chiefs. One of the most famous was a woman, shout out for the girls. Is that right? Laura, yes. And she was a clan chief. That's unusual to have clan chiefs as a woman. But What is a clan chief? What's the deal with that? It doesn't really mean much now. It's a senior member of the clan, but at one time the clan chief was almost like a warlord, really. If, if he called you out to war, you had to go. If Is there didn't, still a clan chief there at the castle? Yeah, he's in his 30s now. Something mm-hmm. I was very impressed by on my visit to Skye was way in the north, there was the Skye Museum of Island oh, Life. Oh, Island Life, I, yes, a that's wonderful, wonderful family. There's like seven thatched huts. A couple of these are originally from you, that spot. And you, you feel like... going back in time. Yeah. It was you, the real deal. It was lived in by the Graham family, I believe, until 1957. Mm-hmm. And everything about it, including the, the just the charming black and white photographs, thumbtacked to the walls and the peat fire... It's an amazing um, thing. Seamus, have you been to this museum? Yeah, and for me, again, you know, I've grown up in a place where thatched cottages were a traditional way of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right across Sky, one of the fascinating things about Sky is wherever you wander, uh, you'll come across these older houses that are just sitting in the middle of moorlands. Mm. Uh, and to keep that tradition alive and to give you an insight into mm. it is really... And the smell of the peat. I love the smell of the peat. It's just unbelievable. And they really understood their environment when they built their architectural The houses. whole house is sort of bent down against the wind with, yeah. with stones on ropes hanging to keep the thatch from blowing away. And it's, uh, oh, I just found it fascinating. Our guides to Scotland's Isle of Skye right now on Travel with Rick Steves are certified tour guides Anne Doig from Edinburgh and James McCletchie, who lives on a remote island in the Outer Hebrides. He posts photos of the Hebrides on his website. It's unwindinnature.com. So when you're in Skye, likely you're going to stay in Portree. That's the main town, which is not much of a town. I mean, it's just a practical town. The only thing I remember there is that 
down on the harbor, the one fish and chip shop, nobody is sitting at the picnic table. They're all scrunched against the wall, nibbling their fish and chips. Because of the seagulls. Because of the seagulls. Do you know, you're You're both smiling. You know this situation. They're bandits. They are so bold and and hungry and dire. I wanted to sit and enjoy the harbor at the picnic table. I wondered, oh, there's all these people eating fish and chips. Nobody's sitting at the table. I tried and bam, I'm speared by a seagull almost. So I was up against the wall with the rest of the fish and chips eaters. This guy is very trendy these days, so I found... If you want to eat in a nice restaurant, you need to make a reservation. If you want to sleep in a reasonable hotel, or if you want to sleep, period, in a hotel, you need to make a reservation long in advance because the demand in Sky seems to be exceeding their ability to provide enough room and meals for everybody. So you got to anticipate those kind of crowds if you're going peak season. Portree does get really busy, but now that it's a bridge going over to Sky, you can stay on the mainland and visit Sky. There's a little village called Plockton. Ah. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it's eight miles from Plotton to the bridge. Oh, that's perfect. So it's on Loch Caron. And then you're less than an hour from Portree. And from Portree, uh, the highlight of the island for me, Anne and Seamus, was the Trotternish Peninsula. Mm. Seamus, can you take me on a drive around the Trotternish Peninsula? Because for me, it was just a, a montage of beautiful viewpoints. What would you see? What's interesting to me about sky in that area is... The landscape, you've got to look at the geology of Skye. It is so varied. You've got a glaciated landscape there. You've got a Jurassic landscape heading out towards Staffan and down to the Corran. And this is where you can walk with families of dinosaurs mm. uh, right down on the shoreline there. There's footprints. And it's as if a whole group of dinosaurs just ran through this area. And at low tide, you can go down onto the beach. You can start scavenging. You yourself can become a relic hunter in a way. And what's interesting about all of those dinosaur footprints is the only thing that's missing is the flying. Uh, you're looking at pterodactyl. If they can trace this link into here, huh. it will make Sky the complete dinosaur island. Whoa. And it's, it's stunning. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Scotland's Isle of Skye. And we're joined by two Scottish guides, James McClatchy and Anne Doyle. Now, Anne, when you're taking a, a group or a tourist around the Trotternish Peninsula, what are the, some of the describe some of the viewpoints? Because I drove up this yeah. uh, winding road to Kurang, is that what it's called? To the summit. Kurang, yeah. And there's a trailhead there. It's, it's an escarpment. It's, yeah. it's 3,000 feet at its highest, and it's, it's laid over basalt. Uh, but it's very dramatic because you've got the cliffs going up to the escarpment, and because of the erosion, because it's sandstone, a pinnacle's formed, the old man of store. And they it's, do amazing things, actually, in the summer. They are trekking up to the top, lighting up, having kaylees and music. And so it's an, it, an amazing backdrop of this escarpment and then this pinnacle. It's all so easy on Sky. Beautiful trails you can take, or hikes you can take from the trailheads. Charming museums and uh, distillery. There's the Talisker Distillery. There's an Iron Age roadside fort that I'll never forget. And a chance to walk out in a peat field. Seamus was talking about the peat and the evocative peat fires. Uh, you can go out into the peat field. The Isle of Skye, to me, it's sort of, it's designed for somebody who wants to gain an appreciation of traditional Scottish culture. Anne and Seamus, it's been so delightful having you to help contribute to this conversation. Uh, I could talk all day, but we're out of time. But just one, one moment, one little place where you feel the epitome of Skye for you. Anne. Well, there's a loch, Loch Karusk. It's difficult to get to, but there is a little boat called the Bella Jane that will take you. But it's amazing because that's where the volcanic hills, pinnacles, just, Karusk means cauldron, rise up. And it's really dramatic. And you can sometimes snow on the top, see an eagle 
Loch Karusk. So a nature lover and a geologist sounds great. Yeah. Seamus. It's really fascinating that Anne's picked one of my favourite destinations as well. <laughs> it's in, in the Gaelic language, we say that this is Shofarvil Nanayil Nantav. This is where the angels rest before they go to heaven in Karusk, ah. this area here. But there's another place that I really like going to. It's a place called Spar Cave. And this is a little walk that you take out down from the end of Yolgal out onto the coastline. You then walk your way along the coastline. You clamber down onto the shore at low tide. And you suddenly come to this ancient wood stone doorway that was created by the Victorian landlord at one time who wanted to charge people entry there. <laughs> and you go into this, into this cave through the mud and suddenly you come to a marble staircase that is just created out of all the rock. And as you start to climb up inside this cave, you climb higher and higher and then you look down and you see this sparkling uh, pool inside it. And during Victorian times, many of them came here to steal all the stalagmites and everything. Uh, and Walter Scott himself had gone there and called it Mermaid's Cauldron. Huh. It's an oh, amazing place. It sounds place. incredible. Anne Doig, James McClatchy, thank you so much for joining us. And James, one more. Say in, in Scottish, where the angels rest before they go to heaven. And that is the Isle of Skye. We'll look at sites that fans of Van Morrison can find in his hometown of Belfast, Northern Ireland, in just a bit. But first, a long-distance kayaker tells us about the rewards of a paddling adventure down two of America's most famous rivers. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. When Dave Ellingson goes on a pilgrimage, he likes to use his upper arms. He's seen thousands of miles of America from the cockpit of his kayak. Dave has retired from teaching environmental ethics at Trinity Lutheran College in Everett, Washington and serving as a local pastor. But he's keeping fit and active. A few years ago, he kayaked the entire length of the Mississippi River. Two years later, he put in another 500 miles paddling down the Erie Canal and the Hudson River from Buffalo to the Statue of Liberty. And as we spoke to him, he was planning to kayak the fjords of Norway. Dave shares insights that came to him while alone in his kayak that he includes in his two-volume book series called Paddle Pilgrim. Dave, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you, Rick. Good to be here. Now, as a retired Lutheran pastor, a retired college professor, a marathon runner, a triathlete, and a long-distance kayaker and a pilgrim, what's the connection? My grandmother said I had ants in my pants, and that was a nice way of saying hyperactive. I think we have other diagnoses these days. I love to be active, and when I can be active, whether it's running or paddling or walking or hiking or traveling, I learn, and that's my mode of operation. And then you must have a passion for sharing it as a pastor, a professor, and a writer of uh, your blog, basically. Yeah, I love a line from the poet Mary Oliver. She says, instructions for living. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Hmm. And you have with your I, pilgrim paddle. I, but doing my best. So we're talking major kayaking trips. What, over 2,000 miles on the Mississippi? Yes. And then 500 on the Hudson? That's correct. And this was done alone. You chose to go solo. What thought process was there? Were you in, intentionally alone? Was, was that an important part of the experience? Actually, on the Mississippi, I had a friend with me in the early going who mm -hmm. was very important. But the solo part of a pilgrimage, it really is a journey outward and it's a journey inward. In some ways, 
the socialization, which can be wonderful, and I had plenty of people I met along the way, the socialization can be a distraction. So being alone forced me to turn inward, and that's where some of the greatest learning took place. For me, if I ever had the opportunity to do the pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago, where you hike for a month across northern Spain, it would be a big question. Would I go with my loved one or my best travel partner, or would I go all alone? And when I saw Martin Sheen in The Way, you know, the movie, I just was disappointed because he was going with a, with a gang of friends, and I thought, no, a pilgrimage should be alone. Well, I think there's the, kind of the mix of the social. So the Camino or my pilgrimages, I met angels along the way, yeah. river angels, canal angels. So I was never truly alone. And then theologically, part of a pilgrimage is a journey with God. But So um, you're not really alone no, if you're, if you're in touch with your spirituality. Exactly. So I want to talk about your river angels in a minute, but let's first talk about the trips themselves. Okay. okay. Mississippi River, 2.3 million paddle strokes. That's a lot of paddling. (laughs) Just in a nutshell, where did you go on the Mississippi? Well, I started at the headwaters at Lake Itasca in northern Minnesota. And then you travel down through... And headwaters, how big is the river at that point? Oh, you walk across it. It's a little tiny stream. And it's called the Mississippi at that point? Yes, it's the Ah, Mississippi. It's a stream. The Mississippi stream. Exactly. And it keeps steadily growing through marshlands and wilderness areas. So you watched it grow right there. And and it became my teacher. I mean, the river kept growing. And then each stage of the way, the towns get bigger, the cities... The boats, the barges, uh, it just expands and expands into the mighty Can you remember the sound of the kayak on the pebbles as you first started that? What was that like? You're embarking on a 2,000-mile paddle. I remember it particularly well since it was a drought year, and my kayak was dragging on the bottom, and very often I had to pull it and get out of it and carry it, and uh, I was glad when it finally got, the water got deep enough that I could actually paddle. (laughs) Okay, so you must have had a good time because four years later, you went on another ride, shorter, but nothing to sneeze at, 500 miles, Mm -hmm. and this was the Erie Canal and the Hudson River. Uh, Describe that route. Well, the Erie Canal is a remarkable body of water. They called it the eighth wonder of the world when it was completed. It goes 300 miles across New York And it linked the Hudson River with the Great Lakes. And so it was a remarkable thing, both commercially and also in terms of the immigrants. Millions of immigrants found their way there to the Midwest. And that's how Mm. my relatives found their way. So you come up the Hudson River, which I lived along as a boy. It's a, a large body of water. And then you turn on the Erie Canal and you travel over toward Buffalo or, or the other direction. And this was part of your, to retrace your Norwegian great-grandparents' yes. path. Were they like towpathed up that canal? They were indeed. Yeah, they would have come across uh, on a schooner mm-hmm. from Norway. They would have traveled on a steamship past the Statue of Liberty, up the Hudson, and then a packet boat, which was pulled by mules across the uh, Erie Canal. They would get on another steamer across the Great Lakes, and the Ellingsons went to Iowa, and the Halversons went to Wisconsin. I love that, tracking your ancestors' route as they make their way into the New World. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Ellingson. He's got two volumes called Paddle Pilgrim, one about his trip down the Mississippi and the other about his trip down the Hudson and the Erie Canal all the way to the Statue of Liberty. David, describe your kayak to us. Was it the same kayak for both trips? Yes, I had a 17-and-a-half-foot kayak, a wilderness boat. It was beautiful, slow, steady, sturdy, and it got me in both places. And I named it after a while after my 96-year-old mother, Leela V., 
And so I would call her from time to time and would, would say, Mom, you're always with me. <laughs> and she would chuckle in the background. Oh, that's beautiful. And she was in her 90s. She was in her oh, 90s, wow. correct. Did you have a pace that you had to keep each day? Did you have a, a general strategy for that? How did you determine your pace? Well, I, I had to get down the Mississippi in two months. I had to speak at a convention in New Orleans. So I knew I had to do a minimum of 40 miles. I had to average 40 miles a day. Mm -hmm. There were some days when the wind would be in my face or a storm would come up, Mm -hmm. so I would have to get off the river. The shortest day was about 10, 15 miles. The longest was almost 80 miles in Mississippi. And if you fell off your pace, you might have to abort your mission and fly to your conference. I I never wanted to do that, but it was conceivable, yes. Yeah, so you had to keep on that. And then I noticed on your next trip, you decided to go quite a bit slower, just 15 miles per day. Why, why did you make that well, change? Well, you have a little bit of a current in the Mississippi, so it oh, helps okay. you to go downstream a little quicker. And, and in the Erie Canal, there are all these wonderful historic towns in upstate New York. There's a lot of history up there. So I wanted to stop and camp and meet the locals and examine the architecture and learn about the area. And so I was savoring it a little more than I did the Mississippi. Okay. So this Mississippi, that was the epic journey, really. Yes. Now, you look like you're quite a tidy person now and nothing scary about you visually, but I can imagine no shower for five days, Mm -hmm. uh, unshaven, Mm -hmm. a little bit hungry, Mm -hmm. covered with dirt, Mm -hmm. you stumbling out of the river, Mm -hmm. looking for a meal. Mm -hmm. What is that like to be alone uh, going down this river and uh, having to find a place to camp for the night, to get a meal, to take a shower, to just talk to somebody because you're lonely, but you look kind of scary, I would think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately, when you're paddling down the river, you encounter people along the way, even in the most remote places, and they take good care of you. And occasionally, they'll give you a shower. But one of the fun things that happened along the way was there are a lot of casinos between Mm. Illinois and New Orleans. And I would stop at the casinos They're air-conditioned, you plunk down $10, and you can eat and eat and eat without guilt. So these are floating? uh, Some are are floating, and some are just up the hill from the river. Because I can picture an old steamer that's turned into an entertainment ship that's permanently moored there. That's right. And you got a buffet just like you'd have in Las Vegas, precisely. Precisely. But you come in there uh, not ready to have a party and not looking like you're uh, very civilized. And how do you do that? I mean, you, you must have to explain hold on a minute, you know, and uh, I, I'm, I just need a shower, and then how do you get a shower? There, there was a burly man at each of the casino doors, and I, would, I had my little speech down, hi, I'm Dave, I'm paddling the whole Mississippi River, and they go, really? Oh, God. And I had them hooked, and I would say, listen, I'm going to come in and have the buffet and use your facilities. Is there anything I need to know? And they were my friends. Now, the shower piece, I would walk into the bathrooms. This is way too much information. And I would um, remove articles of clothing. Let's just leave it at that. And I would bathe in the sink. And it was always, I thought, hilarious when some casino person would come in to use the facilities yeah, and, and they would see this. <laughs> river rat. River rat, exactly. And they, would, and they would pretend they didn't see me. So that was when you were lucky you found a casino. Right. But other times, I was impressed, David, reading Paddle Pilgrim, the miserable cuisine you had otherwise. Because I do not like living on granola bars. Well, granola bars, I would try to have some fresh fruit. I would generally um, have a a mixed nuts and a variety of things. But the casinos save the day. And one of the axioms of expedition kayakers is if there's a restaurant or a bar on the banks, you stop. 
there's just not that much infra. I mean, like if you go biking down the Danube River, right. you've got all sorts of delightful places to yeah. eat and sleep yeah. and have yeah. a drink. But on the Mississippi, it's not really designed for that. Well, actually, the Mississippi has lots of river towns, and right. they're really interesting towns. And right. I, whenever there was a town, I would stop. Right. And I would walk down Main Street right. and I would get to know where the bar and the restaurant was and I'd get to know who the police chief was and I would introduce myself. And again, invariably, people would come up and say, do you need a place to stay or yeah. do you need some food or whatever? And they were wonderful. But I, I would wonder, thinking about Lila V, is that the... Lila V. Lila V, your boat, your kayak. Yeah. You want to leave it. You've been sitting in it all day in part of your two million paddles. And... Uh, <laughs> You want to leave it and stretch your legs, but you got your whole world is in that kayak. Right. How did you do that safely? Are there places you can safely tie up your kayak everywhere you need them? Yes and no. I mean, I, I sort of had to be really trusting. And, yeah. and you, you pull your kayak up to a dock, and I had a little lock, and if somebody wanted to cut you it. You just but, cut open. Right. But I, I was, again, amazed at the goodness of people along the way who Because how long was this adventure on the Mississippi? Two months. Two months. And, yeah, so you'd have canvas or whatever, but you'd mm-hmm. have it locked. But anybody mm-hmm. could knife it open and oh, steal sure. your stuff. And you knew that, but it was locked, and they'd have to be quite intentional to rip right. you off. And right. you had no problem. No. And again, people would stop and they'd say, what do you need? They'd drive me to town. They would help me get food. And you had to be trusting. It's part of a pilgrimage, I suppose. I think that's one of the things you you either do or you don't go on pilgrimages because you are at the mercy of the elements, the people, the terrain, all of that. What's the impact of climate change as you're on the water for two months? Was it part of your awareness? Oh, of course. Why? One of the courses that that I I taught at the college was environmental ethics. and. Uh I'm a firm believer that humans are making huge impacts on the climate. And the way it's happening on the Mississippi particularly, and of course climate change creates extremes of weather, right? And mm-hmm. and oftentimes uh, on the Mississippi, one year is a drought, another year is a flood year. And so if you look at the actually the last 10 years on the Mississippi River, about half the years are drought, half the years are floods. And if you look at that comparing for 100 years – that's incredibly unusual. I went down in a drought year, so the water was low. The year after, a friend of mine went down the river, and it was a flood year. And she liked the fact that she was traveling faster, but she couldn't find places to camp because everything was flooded. So that's in, there's alternate drought and flood years these days that they didn't have in the past. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Ellison. His book is Paddle Pilgrim, telling the story of his kayaking adventures. There's two books, one down the Erie Canal and the Hudson River, and the other one over 2,000 miles down the Mississippi, from the headwaters all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Norlands. Norlands. Oh, my goodness. Now, David, you talked about river angels, and when we think Norlands, we're talking about southern hospitality. And I, I think it was near Memphis, you talked about meeting a man named... Herb, who gave you the best <laughs> can of beer of your life. <laughs> Tell us about Herb. Well, it was south of St. Louis. Right? Yeah, it yeah. was uh, late in the day. I had had a long day. I was hot. I was tired. I was thirsty. I was ready to crawl into my tent. I had pulled up on the shoreline. Some guys were fishing for catfish. And uh, as I was crawling into my tent, he said, are you thirsty? And I mean, I said, yes. So he invited me over to the campfire and he and his two sons and the dog were sitting there and he handed me a tall can of beer. There wasn't even a label on it. Right. And we sat there for an hour swapping tails, and I drank what I call in my book the best beer I ever had. And if you're a connoisseur of beer, this was skunk water. Yes, it really, really was. (laughs) But the kindness that they showed to me was remarkable. And and that kind of thing happened over and over and over again. I love it. And in that section of the book, you have this wonderful quote by St. Bridget. 
Yes, heaven is a lake of beer and every sip a prayer. Oh, spoken like a Lutheran pastor. (laughs) (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pastor David Ellenson about his paddle pilgrimage down the Mississippi River. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Anil's calling in from Fort Lauderdale in Florida. Hi, Anil. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Do you have a comment or a question for David? I uh, had some experience in kayaking uh, along the Hudson River. Uh, are you familiar with the, and I don't know if I'm saying it correct, the Aesopus Creek? Yes, yes. And you've paddled up the creek? Up the creek, about one to two miles. Yes, uh, yes. This was this was back in 2011, uh, and it was just, it was so much fun, and it's beautiful, and I just highly recommend it to, you know, anybody that's in the area. Yeah, I, I completely agree. This is Dave. Um, there are so many little sub-adventures. The, the Hudson is a beautiful river, but then all of a sudden you turn off into a little creek and paddle back in and you like you go back in time and, and space. Exactly. It's, just, it's, it's like you're in a different world, and I remember that creek very well. Going back in time, how so? With the architecture and the townscape? Sometimes if you go up a creek or into a town and there's a, a water mill or some kind mm. of old hotel or something. Um, but sometimes I, I, I'm kind of a mystic and I kind of space and time collapse for me. When I, when I travel and I go in new places, I imagine myself historically in a different time and I'm an explorer. I'm a I'm a Native American paddling up a creek, or I'm a I'm a pioneer. I'm Lewis and Clark on their journey. So I, for me, time and space collapse when I travel. Exactly, and it just just the nature around you is just so incredibly peaceful there. Absolutely, um, and it's really only about an hour and a half or two hours north of New York City. So huh. you know, it's just so crazy that it's such a different different world up there. Great, Anil. Thanks for your comment. No problem. Take care. And Michael's calling in from Charlton, New York. Hey, thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me. I don't know if I'm brave enough to do the kayaking, but I have gone cycling along the Erie Canal as I live just outside of Albany, New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my favorite things of doing the Erie Canal, and I don't know if you can um, kind of echo my sentiment, was going lock to lock and meeting the people. Because I, I did it by myself, and I think the the serenity and the quietness of, of being by yourself really allows you to reflect not only on nature, but the people and just how the system works and, and kind of forget about all of the craziness of the world for just a little bit, even at that. Great comment. The towpath, of course, that the, that the mules used to pull the packet boats up is a wonderful bicycle path. I met a lot of people bicycling either one way or the other. I've known people who've bicycled one direction and paddled the other direction. Hmm. And, of course, there's 34 locks along the Erie Canal, and the lock masters, the lock keepers are terrific people. Um, I camped by many of the locks. It's state property, so you can set up your tent on the grass by the lock. And then you'll have oftentimes an interesting conversation with the folks who've been working along that canal for many, many years. So I completely agree. I mean, you can paddle the canal, and you can also pedal the Mm -hmm. canal. And those industrial yeah, age towpaths are just—they're so evocative to me. I love them. Yep. Yeah, it was amazing in terms of just the the conversations that people are willing to have. You know, because there, there really is, I think, a, a big stigma of people, you know, not talking to strangers. But um, some of my best conversations were along that trip, and obviously speaking with people I've never met before. I think sometimes when you're a pilgrim. You know, it's that chance, wonderful encounter, and you're never going to see that person again, maybe. And you feel like, I can open up my soul and have a great conversation. 
And if you're on the yeah, road as a pilgrim for, for two months, you've got a pure diet of talking with strangers. That's right. That's part of the joy. Michael, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Cruising down the river on a Sunday afternoon. Dave Ellingson blogs at dellingson.com. He shares some of the challenges he faced on his kayak adventures in just a minute. Then we're off to Northern Ireland to hear how Belfast is proud of native son Van Morrison and where you can see the sights that show up in his songs. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Dave Ellingson says there's no better way to get in touch with the natural beauty of the country and the deeper parts of ourselves than at the pace of your own paddle on a multi-week-long kayaking trip. Dave's a retired Lutheran pastor and college professor whose physical stamina is, to say the least, an inspiration. In his Paddle Pilgrim books, he writes about what he discovered about himself and the country around him as he journeyed the length of the Mississippi and later the Erie Canal and Hudson River. And Dave, this is an interesting thing. When you are all day long, you were, what, uh, 10 hours a day paddling. Talk about boredom. (laughs) Talk about terror. Talk about entertaining yourself. Yeah, talk talk yeah. about the beauty of solitude. I mean, there's there's this, you mentioned in your book, the dueling forces of loneliness and, I think, beautiful solitude. That's right. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a battle sometimes. I mean, one could romanticize a pilgrimage, and there are moments when you are lonely. And I would often sing as I traveled down the canal. I love to sing, and oh, what a beautiful morning was sung many, many times as the mm-hmm. sun would come up along the Mississippi River. But I think the solitude part comes from realizing that you're really not alone, that you have these river angels along. I quote a passage in the Bible from the book of Hebrews where it says, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And so I look up at the sky and I see these clouds and I think of all the people, when Paul writes that in Hebrews, he's referring to, I think, really kind of a Greek image of the Olympics, mm-hmm. right? And the, the crowd's cheering you on. And so I felt like people were cheering me on when I was not doing very well. And there were many moments. One of my favorite quotes about expedition kayakers is, it's hours of tedium and boredom interrupted by brief moments of sheer terror. And what is a brief moment of sheer terror? In the Um, the context of the Mississippi. Paddling across towards what you hope is a sandbar in the dark at night in the lower Mississippi and hearing honk and knowing that is a a barge bearing down on you. And if you turn around, that might give the barge enough time to overtake you and you may die there that night. And you paddle like crazy and barely make it. And then you get out of the channel and you look back and... So you realize that was a close call. Oh, very close call. And that's in your book, you call it the barge bullies? That's right. Because <laughs> the, they're bigger than you. They were. They were. And they didn't see me. They didn't care. They've, oh, <laughs> I, You know, I've been out in the Puget Sound here in a kayak, and next to the ferry, the state mm-hmm. ferry, you feel very small. You are very you, tiny. Speaking of terror, in your book, you've got a photograph of the weir or something in, I think, St. Louis, where you're coming through a city, and you might not know what's ahead of you, but sometimes there's grinding kind of dams and waterfalls and mm-hmm. man-made mm-hmm. barriers. Mm-hmm. Do you have a chart? Do you know what's down the way? Or can you all of a sudden realize, wait a minute, this is not kayak-friendly? And then you don't know what the weather's going to be. I mean, it, yeah. it can. when I went through St. Louis, I mean, I was very familiar with the city and the arch and all of that, but there's a huge amount of barge traffic. Right. So you're dodging barges. That particular day was a drought year, so the river's low, 
and there was a headwind. So the combination of the current, the headwind, and all these barges, mm-hmm. I felt like I was, uh, you know, constantly just trying to stay out of the way. And it was it was a terrifying experience. So that was not fun. And there were lots of moments like that where you just you sort of pray without ceasing and paddle like crazy. You wrote that the lower half of the Mississippi was, quote, pretty rank, draining lots of people and industry. It just sounded like, oh, this is the long stretch here. And then you, you talked about south of Memphis, several hundred miles of no people, no houses, no right. nothing, just right. praying for a drink and a refuge. What was that like and how did you manage? Well, compared to the north in, in Minnesota where it's wilderness and woods and green, the lower Mississippi, which is the free-flowing part of the Mississippi from Cairo, Illinois, south, the river gets really big. And it's bounded by large uh, levees. Mm-hmm. And so there's – and on the other side – you don't see what's on the other so side of the levee. So these are just concrete levees as exactly. far as you can paddle. And behind it, for the most part, in Mississippi and Arkansas are farms. And many of them are, are rice paddies. And so occasionally I would pull off the river and camp, but there weren't people around because these are large agricultural operations. But you needed some civilization here. So how did you find a a person and and then what happened? Well, you just paddle and you have a map and it says, uh, my favorite example was Osceola, Arkansas. I got to this place and there was a guy fishing along the river and I said, hi, I'm Dave. I'm paddling down the river and this is Osceola. He said, oh no, that's eight miles away. The river moved. And it was like, what? Well, the Mississippi keeps recharting its channel. So he drove me to town, but the river had actually moved to a new place. And then there were these little towns along the way. Whenever there's a town, you stop and you you get to town and get some food and drink and something to human contact. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dave Ellingson. His book is Paddle Pilgrim. This whole idea of sabbatical and pilgrimage and personal solo adventures, just fascinating to be an inspirational. As a professor on sabbatical, what did you learn? The professor part of me that loves the outdoors and teaches about the environment, I was constantly reminded by the wildlife, the fish, that the Mississippi River, for example, is the home to many, many species. This is their flyway. This is their home. And we humans have this responsibility to care for that waterway. It's an amazing, amazing natural resource But we've often kind of treated it as almost like an open sewer. And so the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, sensible legislation, enforcing that legislation has cleaned up the Mississippi, but we still have a long ways to go. Agricultural pollution is one example that is the worst. So you gained an appreciation of how, apart from the needs of human beings, this was integral to the whole ecosystem. Exactly. And then as a pastor on a pilgrimage, how did you get closer to God? Hmm. There are so many ways. I think the main thing was I slowed down, I listened, I paid attention to what was going on around me. We get so busy that we don't notice what's happening around us and appreciate a beautiful sunrise, the kindness of somebody on our journey, the taste of good food, having a shower after days without. I mean, just the simple things savoring those things and giving thanks and being a grateful human being. Dave Ellingson, what a treat to paddle with you just a little bit. Paddle Pilgrim, thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick.
Imagine you're in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and it's a marvelous night for a moon dance. And then you meet a brown-eyed girl. <laughs> Singer-songwriter Van Morrison was born and raised in Belfast. His legendary status around the world has prompted his hometown to capitalize on their most famous musical hero by creating a self-guided Van Morrison trail through the city. Irish guide Lynn Corkin joins us now for a look at Van Morrison's Belfast. Lynn, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. So Van Morrison, born in 1945, started his first band. It was Them, right, in 1964. And uh, now the city of Belfast actually has a trail for tourists remembering the city Morrison grew up in. He was a youth in the 1950s. What was Belfast like back in the 50s, and and what impact did that have on Van Morrison's music? Mm. Well, Them was the first band he came to prominence with, but he had a couple of show bands style skiffle groups before that, the Monarchs and the Sputniks, and it was the time for skiffle music, you know, like a group of guys get together and just play with whatever they can, improvise with washboards, you know, that sort of thing. But Van was born into Belfast, 1945. The war has just ended. In fact, he has a song called Wild Children. We were the wild children born in 1945 when all the soldiers came marching home from war with love looks in their eyes. He was an only child. He was born into a working class community in East Belfast. His father was an electrician in the shipyard and his mum was a singer around lots of little gospel halls and evangelical uh-huh. type of churches. And uh, as recently as about five years ago, she performed in Belfast with, her, with right? her granddaughter, Van's daughter, Shanna. And you can see where he got his voice and his belting blues sensibility from. But anyway, the Belfast he was born into was very much post-war. Large parts of the city completely destroyed by the Blitz of 1941, particularly the area he grew up in. Mm. And I've got a really personal connection with it because my mum and all her clan grew up just about five streets away. So, you know, it's like walking in my mother and my granny's footsteps when I do the walking tour. So, you know, the shipyard was working at full capacity during the so war. So Belfast was a big shipyard. I mean, famously, the Titanic Har- was built there. And yep. in the war, I would imagine it was critical for the British war Absolutely. effort. Absolutely. It produced um, at least 100 ships for the war effort, lots of munitions, armaments. But Van and Mor- if you happen to be a, a German commander, this would be an important target. Absolutely. And with reference to the war, the government felt Belfast was too far west for German planes and would Mm. not be a target. So there was no real evacuation of civilians, as happened in other parts of uh, England and Scotland. So when the city was bombed in 1941 in particular, yes, you're right, the target was the shipyard. So, now, so Van Morris was born in 45. He That's was born in 45. When the city was rubble. And uh, when he grew up, I would imagine it was a gritty town. Uh, yeah. It was probably always a gritty town, but then it was a gritty town rebuilding after the bombs. It certainly was a gritty town. Belfast would never have been described as pretty, I suppose, but mm-hmm. plenty of character. So, yeah, he was born into the rebuilding era. So what exactly is the Van Morrison Trail? It's about a two-mile walk that connects sites from his life? Yeah, it's a couple of hours walk, and it really is around all these streets of East Belfast, where he was born, where he went to school, where Brown-Eyed Girl refers to down in the hollow, the railroad tracks all along there, and then finishes in Cypress Avenue, which, of course, he really made famous from 
his seminal album, Astral Weeks, in 1968. Unbelievable. This is the 50th anniversary of the issue of Astral Weeks. Could you find me? Or would you kiss my eyes? Laying you down. Silence is the to be born again. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Lynn Corkin about Van Morrison's Belfast. So let's talk about Belfast that Van Morrison would experience today. What's mm-hmm. what's the vibe in mm-hmm. Belfast today with all of its um, um, hard history? Yes, Belfast is a completely transformed city. And I would say he had a, a little part in it, at least in the sort of peace process in that. In 1995, President Clinton came to Belfast to switch on the Christmas lights. And who did he choose to sing alongside him at the City Hall? Van Morrison. And he sang and very... Van Morrison and Bill Clinton, Clinton, 1995, turning on the Christmas lights. Bill Clinton played the saxophone at Belfast City Hall. The city must have gone crazy. Absolutely went crazy. An American president is here. You knew there was something significant going on in terms of what became known as the peace process. If an American president is here, it must be coming to an end. And I was there, of course, to see President Clinton and Van Morrison. And significantly, the two songs that Van sang were Days Like This. Mom always said there'd be days like this and no religion. And there was not a dry eye in the place because it were just such perfect songs that 1995, you know, it's been going on now almost three decades. Let's get above our tribal Let, let's uh, get above it. and, and if live there's, together. If there's anyone that everyone could identify with, no matter what community, it was him. That's a beautiful thing. If one man can rise above all of that sectarian yes. misunderstanding and, and conflict. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lynn Corkin about Van Morrison's Belfast. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Randy's calling from Cleveland in Ohio. Randy, thanks for your call. Hey there, Rick. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame pretty much in my backyard. And I'm a big Van Morrison fan. And I was wondering, where are some of the most notable or best music venues or bars that Van Morrison was known to play at early in his career in either Belfast or anywhere in Northern Ireland? Well, the main one that he played when he was in Them, you know, he's the lead singer of Them, and there was legendary gigs in a venue called the Maritime, which no longer exists, sadly. But, you know, in his early career, he would have played in a lot of little church halls or cricket clubs, stuff like that. But really, it was the Maritime. I mean, the site is still there, but it's not a music club anymore. But one of his most famous concerts was in the Grand Opera House in Belfast. And there is a live album, fantastic live album, live at the Opera House. I think it was from about 1980s, I think. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1993, I believe. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for calling. (laughs) Thanks, Randy. It must be fun to live in Cleveland with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in your backyard. Thanks, Randy. Thank you. Linda, we could talk about uh, a lot of sites in Belfast, the Titanic, a wonderful Titanic exhibit and the City Hall and the beautiful pubs, the Crown Liquor Salon and and the Ulster Museum. So Mm -hmm. impressive. 
But let's stick with the Van Morrison Trail. As you walk along the Van Morrison Trail, designed for tourists, designed mm-hmm. for fans of Van Morrison, mm-hmm. uh, I imagine you've done it uh, many times. I have, yeah. Uh, what are a few of the sites that you'd see that are particularly uh, impressive and memorable for you? Well, the most memorable would be Cypress Avenue because within that section of East Belfast, you know, the street that he grew up in, the street that my mom and all her family grew up in would have been a very typical working class street. Uh-huh. And Cypress Avenue was a magical place. It was only about three streets away, but it was just a magical place. Tree line, doctors, ministers of the church lived there. And for Van Morrison, it was very much into the mystic, you know, a place of contemplation, a place of sounds like some romantic liaisons ah. <laughs> as well in does Cypress Avenue. Does it have the same Avenue. character now as it did it, when Ben Morris was does. inspired it's by it? It's still a beautiful street. And um, then many years after he wrote that, just a few years ago, my mum said, I hear you all playing that song Cypress Avenue a lot. Did I ever tell you that Daddy proposed to me in Cypress Avenue? <laughs> and it just seemed to fit perfectly because, again, for her, it was a magical place to go and walking with your love you know you didn't go to bars in the days of my mum's courting days you went and had a nice walk and they went in Cypress Avenue and my mum had never heard of Van Morrison Mm. but it just seems a perfect story that my my existence is due to Cypress Avenue when my dad proposed to mum and then they got married and then they had all these Van Morrison fans as children (laughs) (laughs) And now when you hear that song, it's like it was written for you. It was written for me. And uh, I could never have imagined when I first heard his music way back in the late 70s that one day I'd be a tour guide and I'd be taking people around the Van Morrison Trail. And again about Cypress Avenue on his 70th birthday, 31st of August 2015, somebody had the bright idea. Imagine if you could get Van Morrison to sing in Cypress Avenue on his 70th birthday. And he did. Two shows sold out magical people came from around the world. He sounds like a great guy. He is. He's very proud to be a Belfast man. In fact, uh, when he was knighted by, I think, Prince Charles in 2016, he uh, was very happy and proud when he came out and he was with his daughter, Shanna, who was born in 1970, 71, something like that. She sings with him too. And he said to the journalists, not bad for a blue-eyed soul singer from Belfast. Sir Van Morrison, I am now. He (laughs) seemed seemed very tickled by that. Oh, he is Sir Van Morrison. And of course, one of his most famous songs is Here Comes the Night. So it was all now Here Comes the Night, K-N-I-G-H-T. Here Comes the Night. That's perfect. He's also a Freeman of the City of Belfast. You know, that's another pretty prestigious award. uh, I get a sense as a citizen of Belfast, you're pretty proud of, of Van Morrison. I am so proud. I love his music so much, but I feel... He has transformed our image of our city. Uh It used to be that blues songs were about Route 66 and the Mississippi and Chicago and all that. Nobody sang songs about Belfast. Nobody made art out of those mean streets. But Van Morrison did. Beautiful. Thanks so much, Lynn Corkin. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner with Sarah McCormick. Rick produces updated walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio Europe travel app. Look for it at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe one small group at a time. 
This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.